Let me ask you this. How many of you have ever heard a pastor or church leader or someone else in the church say that missions is important? Anybody? I hope most of you have. We're, not, we're doing a terrible job if not, right? Let me ask you this. How many of you believe it? Raise your hand. Okay. Now, let me ask you this question. You don't have to raise your hands for this one, but think about this one. How many of you prove that you believe that missions is important in the way in which you pray and in the way in which you give and in the way in which you go? This morning, we're going to learn that missions is important. It is vital. We are to have a heart for missions, and we're going to learn why. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 13. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts, and this morning we are at a pivotal point in the book. We have said over and over for the past several weeks, beginning in Acts chapter 9 and definitely in Acts chapter 10 through 12, that Luke is making a transition here. He is transitioning away from Peter and his ministry to the Jews in Jerusalem, and he's turning his focus toward Paul and his ministry to the Gentiles. And we are going to look at the beginnings of Paul's mission ministry this morning. And what we're going to learn in the passage we're going to look at this morning is that missions is vital. We are going to learn that we are to have a heart for missions. And the reason why, number one, is because God has a heart for missions. We're to be all about missions because God is all about missions. We're to have a heart for missions because God has a heart for missions, which leads us right into point number one. Why have a heart for missions? Because God wants to be known and worshipped everywhere. God wants to be known and worshipped where he is not known and worshipped. Folks, this point is glaringly obvious all the way through this book. Not just the book of Acts, we see it through the book of Acts, but through the Bible, from the beginning to the end. If we say we have a heart for God, we must have a heart for missions because missions is what God has a heart for. Look at Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch. Now, let me just stop there for just a minute. Folks, need I remind you that Antioch's very existence is proof that God is all about missions. We said this earlier in this series. It was 300 miles away from Jerusalem. It was a godless city that was filled with wicked Gentiles and God through persecution in Jerusalem moves his people out and eventually into this city to plant a church there. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that after his disciples were witnesses for him in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, they were to be his witnesses on to the ends of the earth, and Antioch is the start of this great work. Luke tells us 
that this church was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. The dividing wall of hostility between these two groups had come crashing on down in Jesus. They had been made one in Christ at Antioch. And folks, what takes place in this church has been on God's heart since the beginning. Do you realize that? Ever since people were scattered and languages were confused at Babel, God has been actively at work bringing peoples from all around the world back under his rule and his reign. And we see that here with this church. Like the church in Jerusalem, Antioch was a great church. We're told that the Christians in Jerusalem filled Jerusalem with the teachings of Jesus. And we're going to learn throughout the rest of this book that the church in Antioch is going to fill the world with this message. Why? Because God has a heart for missions. His desire is to be known and worshipped by all peoples everywhere. And again, Luke makes this point all throughout this book. He goes to great lengths to make this known. I mean, we've already seen God's people in Christ's church grow from 120 to close to 15,000 or more in a short period of time in Jerusalem. And we have seen his message move on out to Judea and Samaria. And we have seen the gospel taken back to Ethiopia and to Gentiles in Caesarea and to Jews and Gentiles hundreds of miles away in Antioch. And we are going to see here in the first part of Acts chapter 13 that God is nowhere close to being finished with this work. Though he wants the church to continue to grow and thrive at Antioch, though he wants great leaders to lead his people there, and he wants to make disciples in and through the ministries of this church in Antioch, and God wants more people brought in from this wicked city into his kingdom, he has plans elsewhere. Look at verse 1 again. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, there are a few things here I want you to see. Here Luke gives us a list of the leaders, the prophets and teachers in Antioch, and I want you to notice the diversity of these men here. I believe that these leaders listed in Antioch reflect the diversity in this church and in this city. Remember we said that Antioch was a melting pot. Some say that the Roman roads crisscrossed through Antioch. And we see the diversity here in this leadership. You have Barnabas. Remember, he was a Jew, a Levite from Cyprus. You have Simeon, who is called Niger, which means black. And we're not sure where he was from. Many believe he was a black African. Some sources say that he was Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross for Jesus, but we don't have any evidence to support that, but it's a nice thought. There was a North African named Lucius of Cyrene. You have Menaean, who was a wealthy man and a lifelong friend, get this, of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, this is not Herod of Acts chapter 12. This is the son of Herod the Great. 
the one whom Jesus went before when he was being tried, the one who beheaded John the Baptist. And the word used here indicates that Manan grew up in this royal household with Herod, and they were probably childhood friends. Now, folks, can we just stop here for just a minute and admit that that's awesome? Can we? This young man who was raised in this Christ-hating household with these kings who hated Christ and his followers had been saved. And here he is serving the Lord in Antioch. Then, of course, you have Paul, a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, from Tarsus who was converted from being a Christ-hating Pharisee to a sold-out child of the king. This is an amazing and diverse group of leaders here in Antioch. And again, I think this group accurately reflects the diversity in this church and most certainly in God's kingdom at large. The kingdom of God is a diverse kingdom, isn't it? It's populated with royals and rebels, with princes and paupers, with Jews and Gentiles, with black people and white people, with gringos and Latinos. And the reason why is because our God is a missional God who wants to be known and worship where he is not known and worship by all peoples of all races, of all nations, everywhere. Pick a point on the map. That's where God wants to be known. And though by chapter 11 of this book, God's gospel had already spread as far as Antioch. We're going to see in the next two-thirds of this book that God is not even close to being finished. In chapters 13 through 28, he continues to send his disciples out further and further with his gospel message to the ends of the earth, and he uses Antioch again to get this ball rolling. And we are going to see that the God who first used the Christians in Jerusalem to reach the people of Antioch is now going to use the people of Antioch, the Christians in Antioch, to reach the world. Look at verse 2. While they're worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This was one faithful, committed, and sold-out church. Notice we're told while they were waiting on a word from the Lord, they were worshiping Him, they were devoting themselves to prayer. While they were waiting on God, they were serving Him. We're told that the group of men, this group of men mentioned in verse 1, were prophets and teachers. And I'm sure during this time, they were serving the Lord by serving His Word, and they were devoted to prayer. Notice it says they fasted, they replaced food with prayer and devotion to God. They were faithful to do what God had called them to do until God called them to serve Him elsewhere. And folks, this is a great example for us, isn't it? There are some of you here this morning who are restless, Maybe you're sensing that God may be leading you somewhere else, but but God has not told you when and where. And you're wondering what you're to be doing during this time of waiting for clarity and direction from Him. We have a great example of what you're to be doing. We're to be faithful to do the last thing God called us to do until He calls us to do something else. 
We're told that these leaders at the church in Antioch, as they waited, they remained faithful where they were until God gave them a word on where they were to go and what they were to be doing next. And when God does give them an assignment, notice who he singles out. We're told that the Holy Spirit speaks, probably through one or a few of the prophets there, and says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. He sets aside Barnabas and Saul. He wants their best. There are folks in our churches today who know of some people they wish God would call to the mission field. Am I right? And there are others that these same people are hoping God never calls away anywhere. Imagine being in this church and you receive word from God that he wants Paul and Barnabas to leave your church and to go serve elsewhere. Be honest, many of us would be devastated by that, wouldn't we? But how does the church respond? We're told in verse 3, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They sent their best away to do this great work. And the fact that God calls these two great men out and the fact that the church did not hesitate to send them out should show us where missions falls on their list of priorities. Am I right? Folks, how important is missions to you? How would you feel if God sent our best away? How would you feel if you or your spouse was called to go somewhere else to do missions for God? The example we see in Scripture is this. We're to have our yes on the table if he calls. That's where we're to be, folks. Is your yes on the table? If not, you need to get it there. Our yes is to be on the table if he calls. Jesus tells us that we are to be praying faithfully to the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his work, into his harvest. Jesus commanded us to pray that God would raise people up from our households, from our churches to go and serve the Lord by serving his gospel to the nations. Have you been praying that prayer? This is one of the challenges this week you'll find in your home Bible study that you have in your bulletins. The challenges for you and me to get together with our families and for us to pray that God would send forth laborers from our household and from our churches to go to do this work of ministry. There are a lot of great things happening at this church, but this is something I've not seen a lot of in my first five years here. I'll be honest with you. I've not seen a whole lot of people getting up and going. We've had some. We praise the Lord for that, but we need more. Listen, we not only need to be a receiving church, having people come in and grow in that way, but we need to be a sending church. We do. Jesus said, this is what we're to pray for, that he would send forth laborers out from our church and out into the world to do this work of Ministry. We are to pray that God would call out and set apart our best for his kingdom work. The Christians at Antioch did this. They devoted themselves to uh, worship and prayer. 
And when the, when the Holy Spirit said, Barnabas and Saul, they set them apart, no question. Why? Because they had a heart for missions. Why? Why did they have a heart for missions? Because God has a heart for missions, and they have a heart for God. He wants to be known and worshipped everywhere. That was on their list of priorities. That should be on ours, church. So that's the first reason we're to have a heart for missions is because God does. Here's the second reason. So that people everywhere can hear God's truth from his word. We're to be all about missions. We're to pray for missions. We're to give to missions. We're to go on mission with God so that people everywhere can hear his truth from his word. Look at verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now check out this map up on the screen here. Here's Antioch, and then we have Cyprus. This is where they went. This is how far they traveled. This will give you a visual here. Cyprus is a few hundred miles away from Antioch. Look at at verse 5. It says, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. That's John Mark. And we're told that these three, when they got to Salamis and Cyprus, they, they went to the Jews first. That was the normal pattern here. They go to the synagogues because Paul knows the scriptures, right? And he knows how they point to Jesus. Look at verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, that's their last stop before they leave, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So notice here, they go all throughout this whole island, sharing Christ, and were really not told that they had all that big of a response to their ministry, right? Now, we know that God's already done a work here before because we're told in Acts chapter 11 that after the death of Stephen, believers were scattered as far as Cyprus, and we're told that believers from Cyprus went on to do this great work in Antioch and minister there. So there had been a response to Christ in the past, but there doesn't seem to be much fruit initially from this first missionary journey, this first stop of Paul and Barnabas, but notice they're continuing to be faithful regardless. That's a good lesson for us, isn't it? Regardless of the fruit, James Dobson once said, God doesn't call you to be successful, he calls you to be faithful. And that's what they were doing. They were being faithful. And they finally make it all the way over to the other part of the island. Here we have it on the map again. Check it, check it out once again. They make it through Cyprus and they end up in Paphos. That's their next stop all the way on the other side of the island. And we're told that a person here, a man by the name of Sergius Paulus, this great leader, a proconsul, which in that day was a governor who had been appointed by the Roman Senate, we're told that he wanted to hear more from Saul and Barnabas. Luke tells us he sought to hear the word of God. Chances are good that word had spread across the island about this ministry of Barnabas and Saul, and chances are good that their message was going along with it, and it caught the attention of this Roman leader who wanted to hear more. Sergius Paulus was was obviously a spiritual person. 
Because we see here, he's running around with this magician, this seer by the name of Bar-Jesus. But apparently, what Bar-Jesus was giving him wasn't providing him the answers he was looking for, so he calls on Barnabas and Saul for answers. God's doing a great work here, isn't he? Like the encounter with Cornelius and Peter, we see here God working on both ends. We see him working on Saul and Barnabas, sending them to this island. We see God working on Sergius Paulus, and he's working to bring these two together. God is all over this encounter. He has orchestrated this meeting, and the reason why is so that this individual can hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, that's why we're to be all about missions. That's why we're to have a heart for it because God has a heart for it and we must be willing to join him in this mission because he wants to be known and can only truly be known through his word. Therefore, his word must be shared. Therefore, we must go and share it, right? Because Barnabas and Saul went, they were faithful and they remained faithful even though their message fell on a lot of deaf ears with many in Cyprus because they were faithful to press on and take his message throughout the whole island, they eventually come in contact with one whom God is drawing to himself, one who sought to hear the word of God so that he could be saved. Folks, we must be a reason. We must have a heart for missions and be committed to pray and give and go because there are people everywhere God is working on in ways we cannot see who need to hear his gospel message from his word through his people so that they can be saved. Another reason we're to have a heart for missions is this. Look at the next point. Because there are people everywhere who are opposed to the truth of God's message. There are people everywhere who distort and twist and outright deny the truths of Christianity. That's another thing Barnabas and Saul were faced with in Paphos. Though there is one wanting to hear more, there is another one who's standing in the way. Look at verse 8. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So while Barnabas and Saul are sharing the truth of God's message, the gospel of the Lord Jesus, to this man who's willing to hear it, Sergius Paulus, there's another, a a Jew who is a magician, a godless false prophet named Bar-Jesus, also known as Elymas, who stands against them and stands against the truth of their message and tries to turn the proconsul's heart away from the truth. Bar-Jesus is a sinister character in this story. Now, his name is very unique. It actually means son of salvation. But we find here in this story that he is pointing in any direction but salvation, right? And Paul knows it. Though in some encounters the wicked are confronted with the gospel and God does a great work and their heart is changed, this was not the case with Elymas. He resists the message and is trying to turn Sergius Paulus' heart away from the truth. And so Paul, having great discernment, knowing that this bar Jesus is hardened to the truth and is standing against the truth and is set on distorting the truth and is attempting to turn someone who is willing away from the truth, 
Saul rebukes him. Look at verse 9. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Here you have the reason for his discernment right here, right? Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. And by the way, notice that's the third time the Holy Spirit is mentioned in this passage. We're told that he calls Barnabas and Paul out of Antioch. We're told that he sends them to Cyprus and on to these two individuals in Paphos. And he is all over this encounter here. And he gives Paul insight to know how to deal with Bar-Jesus. And he's also at the same time working on the heart of this proconsul. He's all over this work. And notice what Paul, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, says and does to this wicked false prophet. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil. You remember his name meant son of salvation. But Paul turned that name on its head and he says, You are a son of the devil. He says, You enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit. And all villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Ah, here it is right here. Let me highlight that for us here. Here we have another reason Barnabas and Saul are sent to Paphos. They are sent to make straight the path of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, we have the calling of Isaiah. The description of what Isaiah was to do in ministry. And it was a calling that was later placed on John the Baptist. And is really the calling of all of God's people. Listen to it. Verse 3 of Isaiah 40. A voice cries in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for God have been saved from our sin and saved for God and we have been set apart from this fallen and sin-stained world in which we live we have also been called to go back out into the wilderness into this fallen world and be a light shining for Christ in this dark and dead world we're to be the voice we're to be God's voice crying out in the wilderness. We're to be advancing his kingdom. We're to be making straight in this desert a highway for God. We're to be showing the straight way to God through Jesus Christ. But here's the problem. There are many in our world today who are making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. They are distorting, they are confusing, they are opposing God's gospel message, and we're to go and do missions so that we can counter these messages with the truth and show people the true way, the right way, the straight way, the only way to salvation, the only way to be made right with God through Jesus. Folks, we're to be praying for giving to and going on mission with God because Satan is on mission as well. Do you know that? He is. You better believe it. You see this all over. Whenever you go out and do ministry, you find Satan is at work there as well. I'll never forget when Leslie and I went to Brazil on a mission trip. We are going there to help start a church there. And when we arrived, though we found God was already at work before we touched down there, so was the enemy. We encountered the wicked practices of Umbanda, which is a regular practice there in Brazil. 
It's a form of ancestor worship. They worship and leave offerings for the dead in graveyards, thinking that they can appease those in the spirit world to work for them. And we also encountered anti-Christian cults from the U.S. spreading their false views all over everywhere, making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. So that's why it was good that we were there and other Christian groups were there to counter these anti-Christian groups with their false messages. We're there to make straight and clear the way to salvation through repentance and faith in Jesus. That's why Barnabas and Paul are in Paphos. And notice that God does a mighty and miraculous work through them. Bar-Jesus was probably a powerful magician. He was evil and satanic, but probably powerful, which is probably another reason why Sergius Paulus was attracted to him and associated with him. But, but notice that God flexes his muscle here in this story as well. And he shows that his strength and his might is unmatched. Look at verse 11. Paul says, And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Folks, God struck this man blind. You see that? It's what happened here. A few things I want you to notice here about this work. Number one, God is the one who has done this work. Listen to me, folks. Those who oppose God and his message will experience judgment at times in this life and especially in the life to come. That's a guarantee. That's a guarantee. Crystal clear in his word. We see that here. Another reason God does this work is to bring credibility to his messenger and his message. God wants to draw attention to his gospel message. And remember at the end of Acts 4, remember the church prays that, that God would pull out all the stops, that he would do whatever he had to do, that he would do anything and everything he had to do, whatever miraculous means necessary, they prayed that he would use those to draw attention to his message and to his messenger and to draw people to himself through his son Jesus. And that's what happens here in this story with Sergius Paulus, which leads us to our final point here. The fourth reason why we are to have a heart for missions is so that people everywhere can respond to the truth of God's message. After hearing the gospel message from Barnabas and Paul, and after hearing Paul's rebuke of Bar-Jesus and seeing this great display of God's great power, Sergius Paulus is convinced. Look at verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, get this, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Folks, we've made this point over and over again throughout the book of Acts. It's not the miracles that save, it's the message. Do you see that here? The miracles simply draw attention to the message, but the message must be there for people to be saved. This Roman leader gave his life to Christ because he heard the message of Christ from these two disciples of Christ. We're reminded once again of why we are to have a heart for 
missions and why we're to pray and give and go on mission with God. It's so that these types of encounters can happen. He wants us to be on mission with him so that people everywhere would respond to the truth of his message. Listen, if we don't go, we can't share. And if we can't share, people won't hear. And if people don't hear, they will not know. And if they don't know, they will not understand. And if they do not understand, they will not respond. That's the way God has set this thing up. He sent his son to save you and me. He sent his spirit to live in us and seal us. He has sent his word for his indwelling spirit to use to speak to us and through us. And he has sent us to be witnesses for him. Witnesses of his great work. Witnesses of the accomplished work of his son, Jesus. And the way to be an effective minister for God is by first being willing and second by sharing his word through the power of his Holy Spirit. And believers, think about it. Just like Sergius Paulus, God did this kind of work in you, did he not? Sent people to you. He sent messengers your way. He gave you his word. He put people in your life to show and to share Christ with you. He saved you. He set you apart to go and do likewise. So that more people can hear. So that more people can be pulled away from the clutches of Satan and be brought into the kingdom of God through Jesus. Maybe you're here today, you've never made a decision for Christ. Maybe up to this point in your life, you have lived life on your own, apart from and opposed to God. If this is you, listen, you need to repent. You need to repent. You need to turn from your life of sin and give your life to Jesus. God sent his son Jesus, and Jesus came from heaven to earth to live in our place, to die in our place. He took on our sin, experienced the judgment of God, the wrath of God for us, so that we, through him, could be forgiven of sin and made righteous in him. And all that is required of us is for us to respond to the person and work of Jesus, just like Sergius Paulus does in our story. We're to turn from our sin. We're to believe in Jesus and trust in him alone for salvation. Listen, if you've never made that decision, I pray you would not leave here today without doing so. If you have ears to hear, hear this message. Do not harden your hearts to it because scripture is clear. Those who reject God's message stand in opposition to him and have to face him and face his wrath in the life to come. Would you pray with me?